Think about the things you look for in a local church. If you are considering, if you're involved in a move, just like we mentioned with the the Salversons, we have many military families in our church who are here for six months sometimes, a year, three years, and then it is off to a new duty station and to a new neighborhood and new schools and a new church. Uh, There's some obvious things that, that we consider when we move, when we Uh, start out looking for a new church. What's the music like? How's the preaching? What's the core theology? What are the the ministries like that the church is engaged in? But but there's also this intangible element that we all look for, that we all are trying to understand when we begin to look at a local church. Do the people seem to get along? Do they do they love each other? Do they care for each other? Do they genuinely welcome new people? Does there seem to be a, a sense of hospitality towards strangers? Do they show compassion and care for one another? Do, do those who show up as strangers feel welcome as brothers and sisters in Christ? Or are they cliquish, uh, comfortable with who they are in their own little circles, not much beyond that? Are they, are, are they focused on personal likes and dislikes, uh, not so much on other people? Do they ignore those who are new or different? The early church that we're reading about in the book of Acts certainly had its common foundation. It had its share of similarities in the sense that these were all Jews. They had all come to see Jesus Christ as the Messiah. The church is born in Jerusalem out of local people from Jerusalem and also pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims from other areas who were there for Pentecost. And so they come in with some some similarities, but there's also significant differences between these people, just like ethnic, cultural, and linguistic differences that we would see in, in our own area, so too they experience. We know from Acts 2, verses 8 through 11, when it's speaking of the gift of languages that is given to the apostles, the list of languages that were spoken in the places where these pilgrims were from went from a broad region that that covered all around the Mediterranean, far out to the the west, and then to the east, all the way to Rome. And so there was was certainly understanding that that these people were different. Many of them were pilgrims coming from, from different areas. They were not all the same. It was not a melting pot, sort of, in in, in the sense that they were all coming from different cultures and and different people in this area, but they were also planning to go back home uh, and and go back to where their, their lives were. And yet now they're brought together. Now in Christ, they become a community. And so we get to Acts chapter 6 that we'll see in a couple of weeks. There's a dispute that arose, and when Luke records Acts 6 to us, he tells us that this dispute was over care of widows, And he specifically cites a complaint that was brought by the Hellenists against the Hebrews. He's talking about two different groups of Jewish people. Probably a simplistic breakdown, but essentially the Hebrews were the more traditional sort of old guard. They they were largely in Jerusalem and Judea in that area. They largely spoke Hebrew and Aramaic. Um, they, They were accustomed to the traditions that were rooted in their Jewish ethnicity. The Hellenists, for the most part, were these who had come from other areas. Um, they, they lived in other regions. They, they were people whose, whose ancestors, perhaps, were exiled to these other nations by enemies. Some of them had taken the freedom that the Roman Empire and its roads gave, and they moved out of the area, and they moved to other regions. But uh, 
by Hellenists, they were largely adapted to Greek culture. Their primary language was the Greek language, and that was where they were sort of rooted in maybe you would say a more modern, less traditional sort of approach. And so there were differences to overcome. And Acts 6 then shows that, that, that there's this dispute and it falls on these lines of differences. And yet, what we're going to see this morning is there was this remarkable sense of unity. There is this coming together of people from all of these different places who find unity in Christ. And so this morning we're going to finish chapter 4 and move into the beginning of Acts chapter 5. This is uh, an, an unhelpful chapter break. We'll, we'll see that coming up in a few minutes. But Luke's focal point in this section really is unity. He's going to give us two contrasting scenes, two different characters, one who is uh, this model, if you will, of the unity that exemplifies what we see at the end of Acts 4, and then a couple that we will see in Acts chapter 5 who show the fracturing of unity, one fostering unity, the other fracturing unity. So let's read, we'll read the part first about fostering unity. Last week we left off in Acts 4.31. Uh, if you recall from last week, the, the church is facing its first threats of persecution. The young body of believers has now been told from the Jewish priests and rabbis that if you continue to speak in the name of Jesus, we will punish you in some way. And so they've been threatened and they are gathered together for prayer. And then we pick up in Acts 4.32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. We have read so far in these first four chapters of Acts about the witness of the community, about its practices in terms of praying together and coming together for worship and to hear the teaching of the apostles, to, to understand better who Jesus was through that teaching. We saw a glimpse of this sort of sharing that's discussed here back in Acts 2.45. It's the first place that, that Luke mentions this sort of commonality of possessions and how the believers were sharing with one another. But here, here he elaborates on it. Here his, his focus is the many being one, the many now sharing together. And he starts that with that language in verse 32. ESV says, now the full number of those who believed. Other translations uh, say that the, the multitude or the congregation of those who believe, the old King James uses multitude as the language. It's a, it's a picture of something that you and I don't see a lot of these days, and that is large crowds. It is a gathering of many different people. In fact, our English word plethora comes from this same Greek word here that says full number. It's a, it's a large assortment of, of people who have come together. And, and verse 32 describes this oneness that they have, this sizable plethora of people who it says are of one heart and soul. They are in this glorious 
persistent unity with one another. They are, they are being like-minded. And so when he uses that language of heart and soul, he's using the language of, of deep friendship and solidarity and purpose. They are together in heart. They, they, they are driven by the same motive, that is to worship the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And so they have been unified. They are brought together. And, and, and what Luke's going to show us here in this, in this passage is just what, what fosters this kind of unity, how this kind of deep unity is, is being built. It's created by God. It, it, it's not created by man. This kind of unity comes only by a work of God's grace being poured out on people. But it's fostered, it's maintained in ways that he will describe here. And then in Acts 5, it is fractured in a way that he will show us as well. I want to suggest to you in these verses here at the end of chapter 4, four ways, four things that believers held in common that helped foster this oneness, this unity. Verse 32 says they held everything in common there at the end of the verse. So what, what, is, what is in this? What is within this everything that they held in common? That word common is in the, the place of emphasis in the Greek text. So he is, he is stressing this commonality that they have and, and, and the fact that, that they hold these things together is something Luke is underlining for us. And so what are some things that they hold in common? I want to suggest to you four, a common faith, a common humility, a common concern, and a common commitment. First, the common faith. This is the obvious foundation. Verse 32, stressing that there is this plethora, this multitude of, of all of these different people are now defined on what basis? The fact that they are believers. That's the, the point Luke makes right from the beginning. This isn't just a large crowd that's assembled. We saw that back in Acts chapter 2 when this crowd was assembled because they heard noise. They, they saw something. They were attracted to something. And so the crowd was defined on that basis of their attraction to something. Here he says, this full multitude is based on what? Belief. It says they believed. He's pointing us back to everything that, that Peter's been preaching everything that the apostles have been holding out as truth. And in, in fact, you go back to Acts chapter 4, verse 4, and it says that many who had heard about Jesus, about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, believed. And so this belief here in Acts 4.32, those who believed, they are believing in Jesus. They are believing who Jesus is, who he says he is, what the apostles have taught about him. And by virtue of their belief, they have been grafted into this multitude, into this body of Christ. So here they are now in verse 32, assembly of people, thousands of them, now showing their allegiance to this truth. What sets them apart is their faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, verse 33 elaborates on it when it describes the apostles' preaching. They are giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The, the heart of the message that the apostles are preaching is that Jesus Christ died for sinners and rose again. The resurrection includes all of those elements of the gospel. It is the, the end of the story that then summarizes the whole thing, that Jesus Christ came, the Son of God, gave his life in, in, in submission to the will of his Father, sacrificed it on the cross for sin, and now has been resurrected. We've seen this already in the book of Acts. The apostles preached 
what they heard from Jesus. And what they heard from Jesus is that it had been God's eternal plan prophesied by the Old Testament prophets, first revealed there, and then accomplished in Jesus himself that God would save sinners, that he would send his son to redeem a people for himself. And those who who turn to Jesus Christ, those who repent, we've seen that word several times already, those who turn from their wrong understanding of Jesus, from their misunderstanding of Jesus, their lack of understanding of Jesus, who turn from that and now believe in him as Savior, now become part of this large multitude. People in the first century did not claim to be Christians because it was cool or because it was widely accepted. If you look at most surveys in America, particularly in the 20th century, even on into the 21st, and it's surveys about people's religious identification, what sort of group they identify with, almost constantly polling in this country would show that a majority of Americans would label themselves as Christian. They would adopt that because it's okay. It, it, it sort of had a good ring to it. It, it, it. it was popular in some sense. Pew Research, even as recently as 2014, said that 70% of Americans called themselves Christians. That was not happening in first century Jerusalem, nor throughout the first three centuries of, of the early Christian church, the first 300 years of the church, because throughout all of that time, to identify as a Christian meant that you were inviting persecution. You did not say that because you thought it was cool or acceptable or anything else. You only said it because you believed it, because you trusted in Jesus Christ and you were a witness to him. Because this is, this is what makes the expansion of, of, of biblical Christianity from this early birthplace, from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to where it is today, all the more evidence of the miraculous work of God. Because throughout the church's early history, and then in various places throughout its, its full history, there has been persecution of Christians. Those They have suffered for, for having confessed Jesus Christ and suffered relentless persecution. Christianity calls on its followers to be witnesses to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, to testify to belief in Jesus Christ. But by doing so, in many places, at many times in history, that was an invitation to suffer by confessing that. So at this point in time, in the book of Acts, no one is clamoring to identify as part of that community unless... They actually believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Lord, the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, the one who came and died and rose again, and they are trusting in him. Christian unity starts here. It must start here. It always starts here. There is no real unity apart from a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, a belief in the gospel. If you call yourself a Christian, you are aligning yourself with what Jesus taught. You are believing that Jesus is who he says he is, that he did what the the scriptures describe him as doing, and that he is who the apostles and the early church, as we're reading in Acts, also preached, that the Lord, the Christ, the Savior. You, You must believe that we are created beings who enter life in hostility to our creator and can only be reconciled to him through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the starting point, that common faith. You may be connected with people on all sorts of levels, family, friends, neighborhood associations, work groups, all of those different things. But this unity, the unity of a local Christian church, is fundamentally based on belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second, this unity is fostered by a common humility. In verse 32 
It says, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. No one said that any of his stuff was his own. This, this sort of community sharing attitude is not meant to defy private property or owning of property. It's, it, it's not arguing for some sort of governing philosophy. What they're saying here is based on a fundamental truth of Scripture, and that is God owns it all. That this is God's creation, these possessions, these belongings. We, we talk about this, Stuart talks about this when, when, when we have offering. It's, it's that reminder that we are giving back from out of what God has already provided for us. The, the fundamental belief here is God's provided time, talents, possessions, all that I have, and, and I am just being a steward of those things. I'm just responsible for how I handle them, treat them, share them, give them, use them. And so this common humility is, is on the basis of, I don't own this anyway. It, it's actually God's. And that, that starts back in the Old Testament. David in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and all who dwell in it. That is repeated almost word for word in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians. The, the, the same sort of language is used in 1 Corinthians 10 to again say, we believe that what we have is ultimately God's. He has stewarded it to us to use for his glory, his community, his kingdom. And so that's why when 1 Corinthians 16 teaches we as believers about giving, about being part of a local church and giving to the ministries of that church, it uses language that speaks of giving as we have received. 1 Corinthians 16.2 says, On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. And, and we miss it a little bit in that translation in that prosper is a, a passive verb. It, we, it, it's not that we on our own go out and make ourselves prosperous. It is that God rather blesses us and prospers us. We are the beneficiaries of, of God's provision. It's literally what we receive from him. Whatever we have is a gift of his blessing, and we are to be good stewards. Moses teaching this to the Israelites all over Deuteronomy chapter 8, that this land that you are coming into, this, this treasure that is before you, is not by your own making and not of your own doing. The, 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 the generation before that comes out of slavery in Egypt and the freedom that you now enjoy is God showing his favor to you. Always remember that. Have an attitude that, that you are thankful for what God has provided and that what you have is, is to use for his kingdom. It's this common humility. That's why the Bible in James chapter 2 condemns the sin of partiality. It, it uses very clear language when it says, listen, if your attitude is to take and, and, and treat differently the guy or gal who is well-dressed, who looks like they have wealth, and you, you treat that person well and you snub the person who to you appears to be poor, then you have sinned against God. Because all that we have is, is of his kindness and of his grace toward us. If we believe that God owns it all and he has graciously supplied to us, then we start from that point of common humility. It is there, as, as verse um, 33 describes, great grace was upon them all. There, there is a constant awareness that they are benefiting from God's provision, his grace toward them. Knowing that God is my provider frees me up to share generously because I can rest in his provision. 
I can know that the God who supplied yesterday and the day before that is also the God who will supply according to his riches, will supply to my needs by his grace in the days ahead. And, and I can use what he has provided and be a good steward of it in this season. So common faith, the common humility, the third thing they have is this common concern. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as he had need. Makes it very clear here that there was this ongoing, proactive sense of how do we provide for these people? There are, there are people in need and it, it, it makes it clear right here, Luke says, there was not a needy person among them because proactively those who had something to give sold and began to take care of that to provide so that there was not a needy person among them. This wasn't simply people saying, hey, listen, if you, you ever need anything, give me a call. There's nothing wrong with that. But th this is actually people saying, hey, we know that we've got people who have come from other places who are now disconnected from their family and the associations that they've had. This is going to be hard on them. Let, let's take care of them. Let's find ways to provide for them. And those who had plenty are proactively selling things to ensure that there's not a needy person. There's this eager concern for how do we care for others. Historians tell us that at first century Roman Empire, that the vast majority of people were of what we would classify as the lowest economic class. They were poor. There was a small percentage of people who were the landowners, the homeowners who were the upper class. There was a small percentage who were regarded as middle class. Some historians will even argue that there really wasn't a middle class in the Roman Empire, but it was probably single digits for both of those in terms of, of upper class and middle class. And so roughly 80% are living off the land. It is an agrarian culture. They are what we would commonly regard as peasants. They are making a meager living to survive, and they are dependent on the people and family around them. That's why they stay close in community, why families stay close, because they need help in order to survive. So you now take these early Christians, pilgrims from other lands, different languages, different cultures, and now they're in Jerusalem, and they have become believers in Jesus Christ, and they are now risking being ostracized from their families and the things that are closest to them that they've depended on before. And, and, and you've created a whole new situation of people who are in desperate financial need. And in the midst of that, it says the grace of God was abounding to all. God is providing generously through those who do possess by moving their hearts to see that need and to care for them. We're going to see this in a moment in the, in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. This, this is not required. This was not the apostle said, those of you who own land better sell it all and give to the others. Or if you sell land, you have to give this percentage to others. None of that is required. This is, this is grace having been received now being poured out on others. This is concern for others. This is seeing people in need and caring for them. And the example that he, he gives here is Joseph, who is known as Barnabas, who we're going to read about as we move on through the book of Acts. We're going to encounter this, this one who is gifted in encouragement. Barnabas comes from Cyprus, about 250 miles away. He is in that category of Jews who is not from Judea or Jerusalem, more of the Hellenist kind of Jews who has come to this area. And, and Barnabas looks and says, there's, there's going to be needy people here. And he sells a plot of land and he brings the proceeds and gives them to the apostles to be distributed. The point is there was common concern. 
people were being attentive to the needs of others. I, I see this all the time. The elder team gets to the benefit of seeing this, of, of, of people who will say to one of us, hey, if, if you know of something, let me know. I, I want to give to somebody. I want to help somebody. I've got this. I've got that. I want to help in some way. That is just the, the generosity of the grace of Jesus Christ working through the concern of the body of believers, seeing and saying, listen, there's going to be need. We understand there's need at this time. Pastor Stewart said this just a few minutes ago. We have so seen generosity in giving over the last couple of months, and it is, it is just a wonderful picture of the grace of God in the life of this church in that we are having the opportunity that we, we know there's going to be people in need. There are, there already have been, and there will be, and we are able to proactively say, can we help? What can we do? Can we give you something? Can, can we provide in some way? Because you have supplied by God's grace. Common concern. Last one is common commitment. And, th and this goes just to that point of how the, how the proceeds are distributed. The, the language that Luke uses here is that when they sold and they decided to give in order to help, they, it says, laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet. He says in verse 35, that's what they did. Then in verse 37, he repeats it, that this is what Barnabas does. Sells the land, takes the proceeds, lays them at the feet of the apostles. That is a, that is a statement of deference to the leadership in that community. It wasn't just sort of disorganized. Everybody did what they thought was right. This was an understanding that we are part of a community, and by God's design within community, there is, there is leadership, and that leadership is responsible, and so they come and they give the proceeds to those who are leading. This was perhaps more familiar to a Jewish community. They, they understood historically that each town had its elders it had a council, sort of a town council kind of group, elders who were at the city gate who adjudicated the issues that went on in that town who were responsible to lead. And, and so what they're doing here when they come and lay this at the apostles' feet, they're not worshiping the apostles. They're not honoring in, in any peculiar way the apostles. They are saying, we understand that God has established this community. He has ordained you in leadership, and so therefore you, you take this and you distribute it wisely. We trust you on this. When we get to Acts chapter 6, again, that, that dispute that went on over the care of widows leads to the formation of this sort of subgroup now that, that takes over some of this responsibility of distribution. But the point we need to see is already early in the church, there are these elements of, of organization in place. And there are believers who see themselves within a community. God has ordained that community. God has ordained leadership in that community. And, and they are gladly, willingly submitting by turning this money over to these leaders and saying, please use these as, as you see best. These are all elements that foster unity in a local church fundamentally starts with belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are a part of the body of Christ if you are a believer in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that you believe that the sinless one gave himself in your place for your sin. From that arises this, this humble awareness that everything I have is from him. It is, it is the kindness of God that provides for me. It's his provision. Anything good that I have is a gift from his hand. And so this, this sort of unity then shows itself. When we believe those truths, it then shows itself in what Jesus commanded, which is love of neighbor. It's that common concern. It's that looking about and saying, how do I care for those in that community in which God has placed me? How do I actively love them and, and serve them and provide for them? 
And finally, there's this common commitment to support the local church in its ministries, in its distributing of, of, of goods to help others, supporting that local church to do just that. All things in common. All right. That's the joyous part of this. This is the fostering unity part of this. And then we have to come to this. Acts chapter 5 starts, but. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and he brought only a part of it and he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much, this, this same amount that you said that you sold it for? And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. All right, Let, let's remember, first of all, that chapter breaks, little headings in your Bible, those are things that, that were done in translation to try to help our reading of Scripture. This is one of those places where the break in the chapter is not at all helpful. This is not the, the number five and the little section that says Ananias and Sapphira was not there when Luke wrote this. Luke just went from, there was this guy called Barnabas who came and sold his land and took the money and put it at the apostles' feet to distribute it, but there was another man and his name was Ananias. And let me tell you about him and how what he did destroys this very unity that was being grown and fostered in the church. And so the story of Ananias and Sapphira flows right out of the example of Barnabas and, and all the rest there in the early church as a contrast. That's why verse 1 starts with, but. Seen this, unfortunately, there's this. The whole context here is not focused on giving. This is, not a, this is not a giving sermon. This is not some incentive to why you should give offering or why you should give more or anything about that. This is not a sermon about offerings. Yes, this passage does show by example that right from the start, early believers felt compelled to take from what God had provided and to give for the care of others. That's true, but the main point at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 is to try to explain this completely unnatural, remarkable unity that is happening within this community in Jerusalem of pilgrims and locals who have come together to worship Jesus Christ and who are remarkably living with each other in great humility. And so he's, he's taken these two stories now to explain that. This is also a warning that the, the beautiful unity that exists in the life of a local church that we savor and we enjoy can be fractured in an instant by selfishness. It, it, is, it is a temptation that is constant before us to turn inward, to turn from the community and turn toward self-protection 
self-promotion, self-interest. And when we do, it, it, it's not only an act of selfishness on our own part, it is something that can destroy unity within the community of believers. God creates unity by saving people and then urges us to maintain it through, uh, through humility and concern and commitment, but there are always the potential for attacks on unity. And that's what's happening here. That's the dividing line. Ananias and Sapphira demonstrate to us that unity can be fractured in a local church when one takes the focus off of God and the community that he has set me in and now turns it to self. How do I look good to this community? How do I promote myself? How do I make my own interests to be paramount over those of others? The story itself is, is sad and it's shocking and it's jarring because everything we've read so far has led us to this point of just this magnificent growth and joy and worship. The, the corporate community is just living life in such a sweet way and then all of a sudden we get to chapter 5 and it's like, wow, this is so hard. And it is, it is Luke's way of showing us, it is God's word God's word way of showing us that sin is real and temptation is real and it can creep into the community in an instant. We should never pretend that, that everything's just good and fine and, and that sin is not crouching there waiting to tempt us and draw us in. It, it, it's really important that we understand the depth of selfishness that grips this couple. The, the only way that you get the rest of the story is to actually ponder what it is that Ananias and Sapphira did in that moment. They, they sold property. They decided that they would take a portion of the sale and they would lay it at the apostles' feet, but they also decided that they would tell them, give them the impression in some way they would communicate that it was everything from the sale of the property, that they were giving every penny from the sale of that property and laying it at the apostles' feet and were not keeping any proceeds back for themselves. That's why Peter has that um, conversation with Sapphira. Was it, was it really this amount? Was it really this much that you sold that property for? Absolutely it was. He makes the, the, the point there in verse 4 when he says, while that land was not sold, wasn't it yours? You owned it. His point here is not that, 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 that they, they were required to sell it or required to give it. In fact, he says, it was your land. You could do with it as you please. God, God does not have anything against private property here as long as we understand that it's a stewardship, that it is given by him. And so he's saying, you, you didn't have to sell it. And when you sold it, you could do whatever you want with the proceeds. He says it was, it was yours then to, to do as you pleased with that money. It was at your disposal. Why then scheme like this? Why then come up with this act, this facade, that in, in, in front of the community says, oh, we have given it all? The, the, the assumption we have is that somehow Ananias and Sapphira have picked up from the story of Barnabas and others that, wow, you can hear what people are saying about him. People are saying, and, 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 and listen, this is not, this, in Ananias and Sapphira proof, this is not about praise of men, and, and it's clear that Barnabas wasn't doing it for the praise of men, but somehow in the community there's this murmuring about, that, that's pretty cool what, what Barnabas did, how God blessed him, and he took that whole property and he sold it and he gave it all. How sweet that is. People could have been rejoicing properly and just saying how wonderful a sign it was of God's grace. Ananias and Sapphira took it and said, wow, they could, they could be talking about us that way. We, we, could, 
we could be the ones that they could be saying, wow, pretty impressive. And, and so they, without shame, stood before Peter and said, yep, this is the full amount that we are so generously and sacrificially giving to the poor. We sold the property, and here is every last penny. And it wasn't. It says they knowingly kept some back. Verse 2, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. They, they conspired to do this. There was a conversation that said, whether, for whatever reasons, for whatever motives, we're going we're gonna to keep some, but we're going to tell them it's the whole thing. And we're going to lie about it. The sin is really the conversation that goes on behind closed doors. That imagines what people will say, that imagines how they will look in front of others, that, that, that just thinks what credit they're going to get. And it was this, a couple, this couple's agreement to proudly declare, here is everything from that sale that is their sin. In verse 2, when it says they kept back a portion, in fact, later on uses the same language about keeping back some. The Greek word that's used there is, meant, it, it is also translated as embezzlement. The, the selling of the property and the giving of a portion is not a problem. It's when you say, this is all of it. We are giving everything from the sale of this property to God and to his people. And then to actually keep some of that and not do it, you are now not just withholding, but you are stealing back from God. It is embezzlement. It is saying, eh, I actually am going to keep this portion for myself. If you say you're going to give everything, and then, then the local church gets everything, and if they don't, then you have now said, well, actually, I'm, I'm playing with this here. And that, that's what they did. It's lying. It's, it's rank hypocrisy that was meant to gain the praise of men. Peter confronts their arrogance, and he confronts them with the fact that their sin is not primarily against him. It's not against the apostles. It's not even against the community of believers. Peter says, you have lied not to man, but to God. You have stood here in the midst of God's people, and you have lied to the Spirit of God. You have conspired to say, to, to confess one thing and to do another. The very one who draws this body together in unity, you are now mocking. If, if you read the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and the thing that stops you short and that gives you heartburn over this story is the judgment of God against Ananias and Sapphira, then I would submit to you that you're missing the simple reality of the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is this, our sin, all of our sin, deserves God's wrath. We have all come into life mocking God, claiming to be able to do it on our own trying to live life apart from him. God is holy. He is worthy of our worship. And the real miracle, the, the part that should jar us, is that the God of the universe would give his son to take our sin on himself and bear his wrath that we deserve. That's the part that should cause us to be in awe that God would save us from the penalty of our sin, any of us. That's the breathtaking part. 
The fact that two people would stand in the community of believers happens to be on the grounds of the the Jewish temple and, and stand in the presence of all of these people and flat out lie in order to secure praise for themselves. This was all about self-promotion at this point is appalling. And they were judged almost instantly. Rather than being appalled at God's judgment, we should be appalled at, at one who would lie to God. We should be appalled at our own sin. We should be grateful for the patience that God has shown us. Despite all the ways that you and I have disregarded God and focused on protecting and self and promoting self and serving self, we are still here. We are still communicating this morning. That is the grace of God, and the patience of God being shown to you and I right now. That's what should capture us. All of us deserve to suffer and to be separated from God to experience death, and yet it is by the work of Jesus Christ that we are able to be rescued from that and reconciled to him. Our gratitude for God's grace should be abundant, but it should never be an excuse to minimize his holiness. We shouldn't look at a passage like this and go, ah, it just seems a little over the top. That seems like sort of Old Testament God. No, this is holy God. This is God who will not, Galatians 6 says, who will not be mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. We don't mock God or, or act as if God doesn't see these things. He's not been patient with me to teach me that sin does not matter. On the contrary, stories like this one, warnings like the one when we talk in communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, the warnings that are there warn us that there are believers who also fall under God's judgment. There are believers who also experience God's judgment. It's a temporary judgment because those who are truly trusting in Jesus Christ still have an eternal place in his kingdom, but there are judgment. There is judgment that comes. And that should give me cause to remember again that God in his holiness does not shrug at my sin in some grandfatherly way and say, oh, that's okay. We are still mocking God. My sin is still an offense against him that is only reconciled because his son gave his life in my place. And sin has consequences. The message here in Acts 5 is that in an instant, the, the, the beautiful unity of the early church could be shattered. If in one moment, someone's attitude, rather than looking at concern at the body, was, how do I get something out of this? What, what's in this for me? What, what's, what's the benefit for me? How can I look, look good amongst this whole crowd? It all turns. How does Ananias and Sapphira relate to us? We, again, we look at this story, and it, at times it's easy to sort of keep it at arm's length. But the, the reality is, hiding our own struggles scheming to, to sort of keep our own sin under cover and in dark, lying about it, trying to manipulate ways in private so that what people see in public is best face, that they don't see hardship, that they don't see our struggles, that they don't see our, our desperation sometimes, that they don't see the battles that we are having in temptation and sin. If, if, if we... Respond like Ananias and Sapphira and say, I just, I just want people to see me look good. I want them to think nothing but the best of me. And we're willing to, to manipulate things. We want so desperately to be the Barnabas, to be the one that people say, oh, man, you are such an encouragement. 
and not so much to be the one who is in need of encouragement. That whole last part of Acts 4 needs to remind us of this, that at any given season in the life of the church, there are a lot of broken, needy, hurting people. Financial needs are stressed here, but there's all sorts of needs, and there's struggles with sin, and people are hurting, and the answer is not to cover that up and to just pretend that I'm okay, and I'm not going to let you see that part, and, and I'm, I'm going to still keep looking like everything is perfectly fine, but rather to humbly recognize that what God has already done for me He's already done with these brothers and sisters. They're all sinners just like me. They're all coming from that same point of humility and weakness. And God wants to continue to supply grace to you and I through the community of believers. The aim is that we, we not only strive to be people like Barnabas, looking for need and, and proactively striving to meet it, but that we also be people just like the rest of these believers who are open to correction to provision, to care, that we be on both sides of that gladly, saying, God, I need help. I need help from the community. I, I, need, to, I, I need the courage now to express that to the community and to ask for help. When I turn inward, when my aim is only to look good and keep my struggles out of the daylight, it's not just self that's harmed. It, this is, as the, the picture in Acts shows us, this is an attack on unity because what it does is it tells other believers who are struggling, you're alone. If I'm going to put up the front on my life, if I'm going to act like everything is great, then I am saying to others, you're probably right to feel, to feel alone because we've all got it together. And apparently you're the only one that's got problems. And we know that's not true. We know that's not the case. And we end up replacing humility and dependence on God with this sort of false self-sufficiency that says, eh, look at me, I got it together. It all collapses under its own weight eventually because we are a people who are saved by grace and in need of grace and in need of not only the grace of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, but in need of the grace of God through the community of believers that we would serve and be served in it, that we would be provided for and strengthened and equipped by the community that God's put around us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for establishing for the people of God community. Whether it was the, the saints of old or those who start here in Acts in this life in Jerusalem or, or we today, we understand that you have created us to live together. Even as, as Stuart read earlier from Ephesians 4, that how, how much the longing is in Scripture of our being as one, our being unified together. We see it being lived out here in the early church. And Father, we pray that you would help us to emulate it. Help us to be a humble, broken, dependent people who realize how desperately we needed salvation in the first place and how desperately we need the continued work of the gospel and your grace in us and through us, that you would continue to make us people who rely on the community around us, who are willing to, to lay ourselves bare before you, before other believers who would help us, who would encourage us and strengthen us. Lord, thank you for how you have designed this to work. 
by the sweet indwelling of your spirit. We, we come before you to confess that we owe all to you, that we, are, we fall short on our gratitude. There are times we act self-sufficient, but we are reminded again and again that it is your care, your provision, your goodness. That is what we draw our life from and our hope from. Help us this week, even from a distance, to love one another, to speak truth to one another, to cry out for help to one another, to, to live as a body, even in these challenging times, to continue to live out the community that you have put us in. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.